All right. Uh, thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I'm Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer at the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. I'm being joined today by Dr. Isabel Marina Held. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Um, uh, 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 Dr. Held is a recent PhD in the history of design from the Victoria and Albert Museum in the Royal College of Art, London, uh, where her work has been funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Council, the Science History Institute, the Smithsonian, the Hagley Museum and Library, the Wellcome Trust, among others. Uh, Dr. Held has lectured in the history of design and cultural and historical studies, and her dissertation, which we're very excited to talk about today, The Bombshell Assembly Line, Military Industrial Materials, and the Shaping of Women's Bodies in the United States, 1939 to 1976. Uh, and research for her dissertation was supported by a Henry Belin DuPont Dissertation Fellowship from the Center, the Hagley Center. And uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me. This is really exciting. I can't wait to hear about your work. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Okay, so um, would you maybe introduce, introduce us to your research? What is your research about? Okay, um, so my research is about the history of plastics in um, mainly in the United States. Um, and I look at the um, application, um, the kind of relationship between plastics and um, their role in the shaping of women's bodies. So the relationship between plastics and um, how they shaped women's bodies. What di different types of plastic materials are we talking about here? Um, so I look at um, nylon um, because I look at materials on the surface of the body and then also later within the body. Um, so I begin with nylon um, and I also look at plastic foams and then I end with um, silicons in my research at the moment. Yeah. And um, let's start with the military applications then. Um, where, how are these materials coming out of the military industrial complex? It looks like for your time period you're focused on World War II and the post-war period. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess with a lot of the materials, it's um, kind of a case of materials um, moving between industry and then later during wartime, they are um, used or kind of adapted by the military. And then after World War II, we see them being um, uh, domesticated on a kind of um, commercial consumer um, market after World War II. So um, I'm interested in uh, nylon, for example, and how um, it starts as a really heavily um, kind of scientific industrial material and then um, later has um, wartime applications um, and then returns after rationing back to the kind of consumer market. Um, and what really interests me with nylon particularly is um, the role of women's bodies in kind of domesticating or glamorizing um, a material that came from a test tube or from a lab. Yeah. Did that add to its appeal, this domestication? Yeah, so um, with um, nylon, what um, I'm particularly interested in is how it kind of starts off as something called uh, fiber 66, 
um, which is used um, in toothbrush bristles, for instance. Um, and it's only around 1939 where um, DuPont um, displays nylon um, kind of on a larger scale to the public um, for the first time in two displays it had, um, so DuPont had, um, known as the Wonder World of Chemistry uh, displays. So there was one in San Francisco at the um, Golden Gate International Exposition and there was another one at the New York World's Fair um, and at these displays um, it's quite interesting for me as someone that's really interested in nylon to see how um, it's only around um, kind of Walter Daw and Teague had already done their blueprints and designs and the kind of popularity of nylon hadn't really been anticipated beforehand so it wasn't necessarily featured in the original blueprint designs it's only um this kind of unique set of circumstances um happened where um nylon is kind of launched around the same time as these displays um these big displays come out and i should say that um the new york world's fair display and um, that DuPont New York World's Fair display was viewed by over 9 million people at the time, so really, really large numbers. And um, the uh, DuPont advertising department really saw this as a kind of ideal um, opportunity to um, kind of experiment with how they were presenting their um, materials that um, come from chemistry to a wider audience to the kind of general public. And um, what happened essentially is that nylon um, became the most popular uh, many members of the audience would be asking explicitly to see nylon. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a display that had been um, put up for that yet that involved um, being able to touch nylon and also women's bodies. So essentially what happens is that um, uh, the DuPont advertising department all of this um, in reports that are being sent back and forth um, between the displays and um, the department um, decide to kind of experiment um, with how they're presenting nylon. And um, what happens is because um, many often women are coming to the displays and requesting to see nylon. Um, and uh, they would often be sent to the receptionist at the front who was lucky enough to have a pair of nylons, which was a very rare commodity at the time because um, it had only been kind of produced in really small tests batches at the time um, and so they would be sent to the receptionist and they would ask her all sorts of questions and this then became uh, kind of more formalized in a way and celebrated with um, the kind of inclusion of a female model um, wearing also nylons in the display and um, because of her popularity the kind of role of this um, female model um, kind of developed with time and in the end she became known as 
Miss Chemistry or the Test Tube Lady. Um, and this is really where my particular interest with my um, research comes in as well, because towards um, the end of the dis of the year long display, she would um, by that point she would be coming out uh, kind of pop step out of a um, the um, records in the archive describe it as a kind of fluorescent luminous test tube prop that this model would step out of and she'd be helped out by a male um, chemist or scientist in a white lab and she would kind of appear as the kind of future poster girl of um, DuPont and of their um, kind of developments in synthetics and although um, and this is where my interest really comes in and where my research really started is with the concept of Miss Chemistry or the test tube lady and how for me this marks an important point in time where women's bodies um, become becoming um, sort of more closely associated with and kind of physically materially closer with rapid developments in new synthetic plastic materials that were coming from test tubes and unlike materials um, offered um, new types of mater materiality um, that hadn't um, been seen before so that is my interest really and that's what brought me to the Hagley actually is I was on the hunt for um, more images of um, and information about Miss Chemistry and the test tube uh, lady. Um, yeah, because she has been featured in scholarship before, but um, I really wanted to find out more about her. Yeah. Well, when you started digging in the collections at Hangley, uh, what did yeah. you find? Um, so first of all, I was really impressed by how thorough and methodical the DuPont advertising department was and actually how incredible it is that these um, records of these reports, they, they're kind of known as lecturers reports. So essentially what happened was um, that uh, DuPont hired um, people known as um, actors, essentially kind of summer job um, men and women to uh, come and work at the um, at the New York World's Fair and they would perform as um, well, that men would perform as chemists to to the public um, and uh, they would perform experiments and things like that in this kind of laboratory live laboratory setting to the public kind of made chemistry into this amazing public spectacle um, which obviously has a long history but was very um is quite important when we think of this context and um and so uh these um chemists or well, chemists they were actors um who were performing these experiments would write really detailed um reports of what people were asking them and how the um, public was engaging with them and these reports would then be, they'd write daily reports, which were then kind of digested into weekly reports. And all these would be sent back to the advertising department, which I believe was actually based in Wilmington. And um, and it's amazing that the Hagley has all of these reports still. 
and it, for me because the mischemistry and the test tube lady is so important to me and my research interests and in kind of emerging ideas around women's bodies and the shaping of bodies through science and chemistry and plastics um it's just really amazing to be able to have access into yeah the public's kind of um how they reacted to these displays and also to find a kind of more complex narrative than what I had perhaps initially thought I would be finding in that it's actually a lot of women that wanted, that were asking, that were kind of being, um, that the advertising department was actually responding to when they made the formal decision to have um, a model kind of um, there to speak to other women and talk to them about what it feels like from a kind of corporeal bodily um, aspect to have um, new synthetic materials on your body. I thought that was really interesting to see that it was a really complex kind of negotiation between the public, between women's voices and between the um, DuPont advertising department really closely monitoring this and constantly trying to um, react to what the public wanted. I thought that was really quite um, exceptional and really exciting as someone who also has worked in museums as well to see that the kind of way of like testing out different displays with the public in mind and to have that kind of uh, yeah kind of ability to change the display accordingly it felt very exciting to me like as if the um, display at the New York World Fair really was a kind of live laboratory for testing out um, kind of the public's reaction to these new materials. So I thought that was really amazing. And I um, was really, really excited when I found some images of the test tube lady that I had not seen anywhere before. <laughs> but that's, that's um, yeah, that's it really. <laughs> well. Based upon those records, would you say the public was um, eager to put these synthetic materials on themselves or in themselves or otherwise adopt them? Or was there a certain reticence or reluctance involved? Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting you say that. Um, so there are, it's quite complex. There are different um, sorts of voices being recorded and um, what I found quite interesting is that yes the advertising department was um, kind of engaging with women's voices and reacting to them and trying to um, appeal to their wants or desires but also sometimes recorded in the reports um, I did read some kind of um, uh, sort of hesitance from some female visitors who were concerned about the context of nylon um, being manufactured by an explosives company and that because nylon was such a new material and um, kind of looking at the uh, press um, releases and papers at the Hagley as well um, there's a story kind of in the DuPont um, and the Hagley archives saying that uh, 
it's the press that had put out these stories that, that um, were generating all this hype around nylon, that nylon was indestructible, that nylon um, uh, was like an iron cobweb, essentially, and things like this, where, you know, we don't know really who put those stories out or who didn't, but it meant that um, visitors coming came with these really high expect expectations of a material also that, I mean, a, a, a thin material like silk that would never ladder is kind of quite alien in a way. <laughs> Imagine that it's that soft and delicate, but it can also be that tough. Um, and so it was interesting to kind of see um, people who were reluctant. Some women complained of having rashes. There were also some stories um, of uh, nylon sort of melting in um, bus exhaust and things like that, that if you crossed um, behind a bus that your stockings would suddenly be gone or, and then women, some women were fearful that their stockings might explode then, um, which I have to say, you know, that makes total sense um, to me actually to kind of be a bit um, hesitant of these new materials and to think about the context like the factories they were coming from um and but the advertising department really did a um made a huge um effort around um trying to um promote and glamorize and domesticate this material that had come from a test tube which i think is really really interesting yeah I think that I'd like to bring that around sort of to your main um, thesis about the bombshell mm -hmm. uh, ideal of beauty and how it relates um, to the um, embrace of these synthetics uh, by the in the consumer marketplace. Um, could you perhaps explain what is what is a bombshell and um, and why uh, what's its significance to, to your research into this period? Mm -hmm. So. Um, my research sort of started out with this um, idea of the kind of bombshell trope. Um, so the kind of, what kind of um, came to, um, what a lot of people associate the bombshell with, um, uh, predominantly white American women like um, Marilyn Monroe, for instance, or um, uh, Jane Russell is another one. And these kind of very curvaceous um, kind of sex symbol um, Hollywood actresses. Um, but looking at the bombshell um, and the etymology, um, it actually relates to um, the film that came out in the 1930s as well um, with Jean Harlow, which was um, known as a blonde bombshell. It's changed its name a few times, that movie. Um, and I was kind of really interested in um, the idea of women's bodies in popular culture being compared to kind of um, weapons of mass destruction, essentially. Um, and I was re I'm, I'm really interested in the links between um, how companies that were actually producing um, explosives or working really closely um, with the US government or producing materials for them um, 
during World War II, how these materials then kind of that have a really um, scientific background become really gla glamorized and domesticated and find new um, roles or like applications after World War II. Um, so I was really interested in kind of, my research started with the bombshell of a kind of analogy for this, for these, um, for kind of the concept of the curvaceous post-war um, kind of female ideal um, and how um, she um, becomes kind of increasingly um, shaped by um, changes in technology and um, synthetic fibres which themselves are kind of byproducts of a military industrial complex so that's something I'm um, certainly uh, interested in and that has kind of um, uh, impacted on my um, research throughout. So um, after I begin with kind of looking at nylon, I also look at other materials like plastic foams um, that also have um, a very industrial military um, application origins. And I look at how they originally impacted kind of foundation wear um, designs and shaping and items, for example, like the um, bullet bra, which is a very conical kind of shape of bra and how they were used in padding and um, also for hips or for kind of um, butt pads as well and foundation wear and how um, objects that looked really similar to things also called falsies that you would put in your um, foundation wear at the time um, became in, actually medically implanted in the body in cosmetic uh, surgery procedures because there's a really interesting parallel as well between the development of plastics and the development of plastic surgery and then how plastics can be sterilized um, in a way that um, materials that had previously been used in cosmetic surgeries or plastic surgeries um, could not. So um, for example, it was really believed that plastic foams, because they could be sterilized, um, would not necessarily be harmful for the body, was the kind of original thinking, because you could implant them in the body and something called a foreign body um, uh, reaction wouldn't immediately happen, which is essentially when if you would implant something in the body before, like for, for instance, ivory was something that was used previously, um, the body would instantly have this kind of reaction because it hadn't been sterilized or couldn't be sterilized, where it would try to expel the item, whereas plastics. Um, often didn't um, necessarily show their um, show their kind of uh, negative reactions with the body until a lot further down the line. So um, it's a really it was still a really early stage of plastics um, research and development. And I mean, we're still learning so much about plastics today. There's so much we don't know, and there's something very interesting about plastics and the way it very stubbornly hangs on to its um, molecular um, kind of structures. And I 
identity in a way that you know even if you know in conservation for example plastic foams have crumbled a lot of them but they're still um they're still um they're still there in a way just in very small particles or they off gas they cause real problems um especially for um conservators and museum collections so there's something very interesting i think about plastics um and their legacy uh today yeah i'm sorry let's okay sorry for the interruption oh okay <laughs> yeah that's just what i was thinking um as perhaps plastics can be um, sterilized in such a way that um, they appear safer to use. But then, um, as you say, certainly in the mid 20th century, uh, even chemists knew very little about how plastics would age or certainly how they would interact within a biological system over time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, could you also, um, uh, we've touched on nylon and plastic foam. Could you maybe give us a thumbnail version of what you discovered with, when it comes to silicon as well? So um, silicon uh, is another, is a third material that I looked at. Um, and it was, um, it comes originally again from um, industrial application. Um, so um, Dow Chemical and uh, Corning Glassworks um, merged to become Dow Corning. And they were originally well Corning Glassworks was originally interested in silicon as a kind of architectural industrial material um, for example some of the early applications were around trying to um, kind of um, seal big um, glass blocks that were being used in architecture um, which I think is really interesting and um, then during World War Two, it kind of became apparent that um, more research was going into thinking about um, silicon's potential as a rubber substitute um, because of shortages during World War Two. And actually, then what happened is um, it was discovered that silicon was really ideal um, engine lubricant for um, U.S. Um, bomber planes who uh, that had to fly longer distances um, post Pearl Harbor to get um, to Japan. So essentially what silicon, um, a lot of the um, initial development and kind of ex, um, the kind of speeding up of its development during World War II was around how it um, could lubricate engines at really high altitudes without um, combusting essentially. So um, that's where silicon actually comes from. But as we know today, silicon has so many different uses. Um, and um, it was after World War II that um, these new markets were being looked into um, and applications for silicon. Um, I was really interested in how um, silicon sort of got closer and closer to the body first through um, things like for instance it was used as a pan glaze for bakers so you could put um, silicon on your um, um, bake bakery forms for the oven and then things could come out quicker and it's I think silicon is really interesting because it 
speeds everything up in a way like it could speed up engines it could speed up production of baked goods for example and um and then it found you know application in cosmetic items it was used in kind of um was used as a really precious um ingredient in face creams because it was thought that it could help uh, prevent aging but then eventually silicon gets used in the body for medical devices um starting with um sort of uh shunts that were implanted but then um my interest in the female body of course is um in silicon as an injection so there's been a lot of um work written on um the history of the silicon implant but i'm particularly interested in um what happened before that which was silicon being injected directly into the body without an actual um uh kind of sac or container for it and um this meant that silicon was also able to kind of slip through cracks in the um, federal drug administration's legislation at the time because it could be injected in the body and um, was fluid when injected but then would kind of form could form in the body so it's it's kind of somewhere between an object and a drug or a device and a drug it's had this real kind of viscosity to it and was able to shape bodies in these very um, uh, different ways, I guess. And um, silicon, um, particularly the injections, also meant that it was difficult to regulate. And that for me is particularly interesting as well when thinking about um, women um, shaping their bodies uh, with silicons who um, could have procedures um, that would sort of fall outside of traditional um, medical structures and surveillance. Um, so silicon has um, a long history, silicon injections have a long history of being used um, amongst um, sex workers and also in the trans community um, in the shaping of the body. Um, yeah. Come on, buddy. Come on, come on. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I have another question. Uh, how did your Hagley Fellowship contribute to your professional development? Okay, so my Hagley Fellowship, um, I would say, contributed um, in many ways. So first of all, it gave me the access to the materials I genuinely really needed for my research and in order to complete my research. Um, so that was really amazing. <laughs> Secondly, it, um, what I found really helpful was to be able to participate in um, a community of um, scholars and academics and um, fellow researchers and I was really um, I 
really benefited, I think, from the generosity of other um, people within the community at the Hagley who took the time to read my um, draft and give me feedback. That was really, really helpful. And I've made some good friends. And <laughs> yeah, it's a life you want to be in touch with. And, um, and to have that time as well, the opportunity and to have a space to go and work in was really helpful for me. So I was very fortunate in that I had a one month um, fellowship and then um, about a year and a half later, I applied for the dissertation um, fellowship, which really gave me a longer period of time there and um, a private office to work in, which was perfect for me when I was really had to get my writing um, finished on time. Um, and um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. I think that was very good for me. I, for I'm time. glad it was a, an enriching experience. That's it was really enriching. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know if I can say this, but um, Roger Horowitz has just been so generous always and really supportive and kind and has really gone above and beyond, I have to say, in his support. So I'm very grateful. And he, not only that, but he, I think he has also written me very um, kind references, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I, I, the interruption uh, forced <laughs> it from my mind, but I recall the other question I was going to ask, which was, <laughs> it sounds like you have a parallel going here where, um, um, uh, the artificial or the synthetic is being valued more highly than the, the natural, let's, mm -hmm. let's say, whereas um, synthetic materials are being valued not only for their novelty, but for their usefulness. Um, but it seems, sounds like you have, uh, there's also a parallel going on where a synthetic ideal of beauty, um, uh, where the natural body is not considered the ideal, but instead the ideal is, um, has been shaped by um, by these synthetic materials? Mm -hmm. So, um, let me just have a think. So I think there's something very interesting to be said of, um, you know, what is natural and what is synthetic? Because it really depends who you're speaking with. So I think um, originally in one of my um, working titles of my thesis very, very early on, I used the word synthetic. And then I spoke, I spoke with a um, chemist about it because um, I wanted to kind of get her opinion as someone who, you know, works in a laboratory because, you know, I write about these things, but of course I'm not a chemist. So I spoke with her about this and I was really interested in what she had to say about, you know, the kind of, you know, what we see as, um, synthetic and natural can be a really blurry kind of line sometimes anyway and that you know if we're um, she said you know for example uh, you know things can be synthetically naturally flavored so what is synthetic and what is natural kind of becomes a bit complex and I think it's the same way when we think about the body perhaps is that our understandings maybe of what is a kind of natural body and what isn't 
unnatural body is constantly under um subject to like um differences in cultural understandings and and so um yeah i hope did that answer sure. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah uh, so one day nylon or silicon is a symbol of progress and another day it has a different meaning yeah exactly exactly yeah. so it's co it's constantly changing and um i think it really struck me actually once when I was at the Hagley um, looking at um, uh, like all the catalogues of plastic packaging um, and it really struck me that you know because we live in a time now where we are um, quite critical of plastics and for good reason of course I don't want to say that however I do think it's really interesting to also think about how when I was going through these catalogues there was so much about preventing food waste and um you know there are plastic has done some positive things i guess in that way and that you know for example yeah we can keep our food um so much fresher for longer and of course like there have been really important developments in medical um devices so so much of um kind of sterilization practices in medicine revolves a lot around um, things being um, made of plastic and things like that as well. So, um, yeah, I hope, that <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Well, Dr. Held, thank you so much for joining me for this Hagley History Hangout. Um, do you have any parting, parting shots you'd like to share? Um, no, I don't think so. I'm say I say hello to the Hackley. <laughs> I'm yeah, I, I'm very grateful for the time I had there, and I think the archives are really wonderful. I spoke a lot about nylon, but actually there are other um, collections and things I looked at um, at the Hackley too. It for me, it felt like uh, going to some sort of, you know how. Someone might be really excited to go to Disney World or something. That was the Hagley for me. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed the experience and hopefully we'll see you again. Okay, yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.